Welcome to True Crime Cat Lawyer. I'm your host, Elise, and sometimes my cat Winston joins me. This podcast contains content of a graphic nature that might not be suitable for all listeners, including descriptions of violence, sexual assault, and crimes against animals and children. Listener discretion is advised. Hello, and welcome back to the show. In case you missed our last episode, this is a quick reminder that we're doing a giveaway over on our Instagram page, so be sure to check out the link in our bio for more details on that giveaway. Today's case is going to cover a controversial topic, the use of force in self-defense cases. Another topic this case will cover is race and the dangerous trope of the big, angry black man. And with that, let's head to Bend, Oregon. Bend is one of Oregon's most popular travel destinations. You can ski and snowboard in the winter, and you can go wine tasting in the summer. It's beautiful and idyllic, quintessential Oregon. But don't let the picturesque scenery fool you. There's a dark history full of racism seeping through every corner of the state. Prior to becoming a state, Oregon was a territory, and while it appeared that Oregon was in agreement with banning slavery and involuntary servitude, in 1844, it actually introduced the state's first black exclusion law. The law stated that any freed slaves and black settlers in Oregon had to leave the territory within two years. If they didn't leave, they'd be subject to whipping no more than 39 times every six months until they left. The second exclusion law was passed in 1849. This law basically expanded on the first law, banning any black person from moving to Oregon. Oregon became a state in 1859, and it became the first state to enter the Union with an exclusion clause in its constitution. The constitution clause didn't allow black people to move into Oregon, and it prohibited black people from owning property and entering into any contracts. It's clear from the exclusion laws and their incorporation into Oregon's constitution that Oregon was intended to be a quote-unquote racist white utopia. Oregon is still feeling the effects of these exclusion laws and anti-black sentiments. The racist language in Oregon's constitution wasn't removed until 2002, and even then, 30% of voters wanted to keep the racist language as is. And Oregon remains a predominantly white state. According to 2017 data, there were only 91,000 Black people living in Oregon, making up just 2% of the population. According to the most recent census data, Bend has even less Black-to-white residents. 89.6% of the population is white, while less than 1% of the population in Bend is black. All this to say, Oregon and Bend remain a hostile destination for black people. This background and history information is relevant to the case today. On September 19, 2021, 22-year-old Barry Washington Jr. was out drinking at the Capitol Nightclub in downtown Bend. 
Barry had recently moved to Bend from the Bay Area in California. In fact, Barry had only been in Bend for about a month and a half before this particular night. While he was drinking, Barry met a young woman named Allison Butler. He didn't actually get her name, but he did give her some kind of compliment. That was the extent of their interaction. According to witnesses, this was a brief, friendly encounter. Later that night, Barry again saw Butler and gave her another compliment. It's unclear he recognized her from their earlier interaction. Again, nothing was inappropriate about what Barry said or did. Butler simply thanked Barry once more and told him again that she was flattered but in a relationship. There was a friendly hug between Butler and Barry, though, before the two parted ways. This was something Butler's fiance, Ian Cranston, took notice of before he went outside to smoke a cigarette with his friend Tyler Smith. Barry had the misfortune of coming across Cranston and Smith while they were outside smoking. Witnesses would later tell police that Cranston told Barry to quote-unquote move along because Butler was taken. According to Butler and Smith, Barry became aggressive after that. Cranston and Smith told Barry to fuck off. The men exchanged more words before Barry punched Cranston at least once, possibly twice. That's when Butler started filming with her cell phone. Barry allegedly pushed Butler aside, and then Tyler Smith stepped in, and Barry punched him. And then Cranston pulled out his gun and fired a single shot into Barry's torso. Barry was unarmed. Surveillance footage would later show that Cranston waited 26 seconds after Barry punched Smith before firing his weapon. Remember that 26 seconds, because it's going to be extremely important later on. Police were called to the scene and Cranston was taken into custody. Barry was taken to the hospital where he later died. Cranston was initially charged with a single count of second-degree manslaughter, and he was able to post bail, so he was released on the same day. Eleven days passed before Cranston would be rearrested on charges of second-degree murder, first- and second-degree manslaughter, fourth-degree assault, and two counts of unlawful use of a weapon. In those 11 days between arrests, protests erupted, demanding justice for Barry. The DA called the case, quote, disturbing echo of the lynching of black men for talking to white women, end quote. Before we get into the trial, I want to tell you a little bit about Barry Washington Jr., Barry loved his family, and they loved him equally, if not more, in return. Barry idolized Malcolm X. According to his mom, Lawanda, he wasn't confrontational, but he also wasn't docile when he was confronted. Barry played basketball and football, which wasn't surprising since he was 6'2 and 230 pounds. But despite his large frame, his mom said Barry was a, quote, smiling, friendly, big teddy bear, end quote. And Barry wasn't just an athlete. He also liked playing video games like Pokemon and playing chess. He had a full life ahead of him, a life he should have been able to live and would have been able to live if it weren't for Ian Cranston. 
When the trial started, it was clear from the beginning that the defense would argue Cranston shot Barry in self-defense. In Oregon, self-defense laws take a graduated approach. You can use the amount of force that is proportional to the threat, and the use of force can't be excessive. It's up to the jury to decide whether the amount of force the defendant used was reasonable. So, in Cranston's trial, it would be up to the jury to decide whether Cranston was reasonable in using deadly force. Barry's mom, Lawanda, had this to say about the trial. Quote, Race set aside, people in this community will have to decide if shooting and killing an unarmed man who punched you is justified. End quote. The defense was also adamant that race had nothing to do with Cranston, a white man, pulling his gun on Barry, a black man. According to the district attorney, there wasn't enough evidence to charge Cranston with a bias crime, more commonly known as a hate crime. So let's walk through the bias crime law, and you can decide for yourselves what you think. According to the Department of Justice, a bias-slash-hate crime involves committing a crime that is motivated by bias against another person's race, color, etc. The bias motivation can be the entire basis for the commission of the crime, or it can be a partial motivation. Quote, Oregon's bias crime law requires proof beyond a reasonable doubt that Cranston's decision to kill Barry was based in part on his perception of Barry's race. End quote. The prosecution opened their case by setting up their argument against self-defense. Quote, On September 19, 2021, in downtown Bend, events occurred that wounded this man, meaning Cranston's, pride and bruised his ego. This was nothing more than a bar fight about an argument over a woman, and Ian Cranston used a disproportionate amount of force in this case. End quote. The prosecution argued that even though Barry did punch Cranston in the face, there was no evidence to show that Barry tried to attack Cranston a second time, nor was there any evidence that Cranston was quote-unquote at risk of death. Quote, Mr. Cranston brought a gun to a fistfight. This was a fistfight that had subsided. Barry wasn't armed. There was no indication he was going to use any weapons, no proof that Cranston was about to get the beating of his life. End quote. According to the prosecutor, Cranston's actions were completely inappropriate, and Barry's death was a homicide without justification. The prosecutor believed Barry's death was a vengeance killing. The prosecution called several officers who responded to the scene that night. Detective Camille Christensen testified there was no indication that Cranston had suffered head trauma. She only observed a cut on his eyelid and his eyebrow. Statements were also presented from Tyler Smith. When Smith was interviewed by police, he told them he was quote-unquote surprised that Cranston had fired his gun. Smith told officers he didn't feel like he was in fear for his life, and he thought Barry was just a drunk dude. I think these statements by Smith are important, because if you'll remember, Smith was the one who'd just been punched by Barry, prior to the shot being fired. So, logically, Smith should have been in fear of Barry, but he wasn't. The prosecutor argued that Cranston's decision to fire his weapon 
was a, quote, calm and collected one, end quote. It wasn't the result of feeling threatened or being in fear. Prosecution also talked about the surveillance footage and the video footage from Butler's phone. According to a Medium article, the party atmosphere at the nightclub largely continued even after Barry had been shot, including people laughing with no regard for Barry. Those who've watched the videos say that after Barry was shot, there was little to no concern for helping him. The bouncer at the nightclub said Cranston, quote, didn't seem to have that much remorse, end quote. According to him, none of the three Butler, Smith, or Cranston, were on their phones calling or anything. Quote, the other two friends, meaning Butler and Smith, were just kind of standing against the wall and had this kind of smirk on their faces, end quote. Both Butler and Smith testified at the trial. Butler testified that she was present the entire altercation. Quote, It happened so fast that I didn't redirect myself to look at Ian. I just kind of reached out towards him to make sure he was still standing up, end quote. Butler had told the grand jury that Barry allegedly flashed gang signs at them during the altercation. She had interpreted this as a threat, although she later admitted that she had just assumed that they were gang signs because Barry told her he was from California. I'm not sure how accurate this statement is, because in all the information I read, it was said that the interactions between Butler and Barry were brief, so I'm not sure he would have told her he was from California. But I digress. Tyler Smith testified that he was a concealed carry owner, like Cranston. He said he didn't bring his gun that night because he, quote, doesn't mix firearms and alcohol, end quote. He testified that he immediately took notice of Barry in the nightclub because of his size. Smith also testified that Cranston told Barry to fuck off more than 20 times during their short altercation. Smith also testified that Barry flashed gang signs at the group after he punched Cranston. Smith told the jury that Barry never threatened to kill him, Butler, or Cranston, and Barry never indicated that he had a weapon. Smith testified that he wasn't afraid for his life, but he was, quote, afraid that Barry would seriously physically injure him, end quote. This is a little bit different from what Smith told police when he was initially interviewed. Right after the shooting, Smith didn't seem to be concerned for his life or of a serious injury. If you'll recall, he told police he thought Barry was just a drunk guy in a bar. Then it was the defense's turn to set up their case for self-defense. Cranston's attorney argued that Cranston feared significant injury prior to shooting Barry. According to Cranston's attorney, 26 seconds wasn't a lengthy period. He argued Barry, quote, continued to behave aggressively and gave no indication whatsoever that he was going to stop fighting Cranston, end quote. Cranston's defense attorney argued that his client didn't intend to kill Barry. Rather, Cranston fired his gun to, quote unquote, stop a threat. Quote, Cranston had no legal obligation to allow a large, powerful man to continue viciously striking him in the head. 
end quote. The defense honed in on Barry's size. He was allegedly six inches taller and 40 pounds heavier than Cranston. Cranston's defense attorney argued that he was, quote, far stronger and more powerful than Cranston, end quote. I want to take a brief pause here to talk about the dangerous stereotype of the angry and or dangerous black man. This stereotype is deeply rooted in our country's history, and it's evolved over time and is now what we call implicit bias. These stereotypes are ingrained in our subconscious, and they're what we use to make snap judgments about people, right or wrong. Quote, One of the most enduring lies white people have ever been told about black people is that black men are predators out to harm white people, end quote. Black people are seen as a threat because they've first been seen as black. According to an article by the American Psychological Association, Overall, people tend to perceive black men as larger and more threatening than white men of similar size and build. Because of this perception, they feel justified in the greater use of force against black men. According to recent studies, white people are over eight times more likely to be found not guilty when claiming self-defense if the victim is black. The crux of the defense's argument was that Cranston was justified in using deadly force because he was defending himself against an attacker who was bigger and stronger. According to his attorney, Cranston knew he had, quote, no chance at all in physical confrontation, so he drew the firearm that he lawfully carried, end quote. The defense argued it was reasonable for Cranston to shoot Barry after Barry had punched Cranston twice in the face. The defense characterized the assault as unprovoked and claimed that this unprovoked assault was still in progress when Cranston shot Barry. While most defense attorneys advise their clients against testifying at trial, in self-defense cases, particularly self-defense cases where a person dies, the defendant kind of has to testify to try and convince the judge or jury that their use of deadly force was reasonable. And so, on the opening day of the defense's case, Ian Cranston took the stand. Just a heads up, I'm going to be quoting a lot from the trial transcript because I think it's important to hear what Cranston said happened in his own words. Cranston testified that September 19th, 2021 was his day off. He spent the day with his fiancée before they went to Bend to pick up a friend. Cranston testified that he brought his gun, which he did have a concealed carry permit for, because it was his, quote, usual practice in an unfamiliar environment, not because he expected anything unusual to happen, end quote. Although Smith claimed he'd noticed Barry as soon as they walked into the nightclub, Cranston claimed he didn't notice Barry, and had no interaction with him until Cranston and Smith went outside to smoke. Cranston testified that he, quote, directed all his attention toward Miss Butler, end quote. According to Cranston's testimony, it became apparent to him that Barry wasn't going to leave Butler alone. 
He claimed Butler looked at him with a quote-unquote concerned look, and that's when Cranston told Barry, Hey man, this is my fiancé. I would appreciate it if you would move along. According to Cranston, his words were said in a friendly tone, and he didn't intend to provoke a confrontation. Cranston claimed Barry told him, That's not your concern. That's her job to tell me. Cranston then claimed Barry, quote, kind of turned his body toward him and kind of stood up, kind of puffed his chest out a little bit, end quote. At this point, Cranston claimed Barry was refusing to leave. He told the group that he was from Cali and then gestured with his hand, which Cranston interpreted as a gang sign. Having just said that, under oath, Cranston went on to say that Barry didn't make any threatening gestures, nor did he say anything threatening or give any indication that he was going to punch Cranston. Again, it's unclear if Barry punched Cranston once or twice because I did read conflicting reports. But after the punch or punches, Cranston said he didn't think he could defend himself against Barry. He testified that after being punched, his head was throbbing, he couldn't see out of his left eye, and his ears were ringing. Quote, based on how Cranston felt after the punch, he believed that further blows could result in permanent damage to his brain or knock him out. End quote. And that's when Cranston decided to pull out his gun. He testified that he didn't plan on using his gun. He just wanted to, quote, be prepared to use it, end quote. Cranston claimed Barry continued making gestures and was screaming Cali Crips, but there's no evidence to support this claim. There is evidence to support that Cranston and Butler were shouting racial slurs at Barry. Quote, when Barry raised his arm to make the gesture, Cranston said he wasn't sure whether he was going to be struck again. So he, Cranston, raised his gun, end quote. Cranston told Barry to get the fuck away from them and claimed he tried to yell to the bouncer for help, but he was ignored. When Barry hit Tyler Smith, Cranston testified that he again yelled at Barry to back off. And that's when Cranston said he raised his gun and aimed for Barry's chest. Cranston said he was, quote, aiming to stop the threat, end quote. His defense attorney asked if it was Cranston's intention to kill Barry, to which Cranston replied no and said that he didn't want Barry to die. Quote, he, meaning Barry, stopped dead in his tracks and then he fell to the ground. As he was falling to the ground, I asked him if I hit him. I asked him that because he was so close to me that it was kind of a blind shoot situation. I didn't have an opportunity to use my sights. When I walked over to him, I asked him again. He responded, don't kill me, bro. And I said I wasn't going to kill him. End quote. Here's the problem I have with what Cranston said about shooting Barry. First, Cranston, Butler, and Smith all testified that Barry became more aggressive after he saw Cranston's gun. This doesn't make sense to me because most people, when confronted with a gun, would try to de-escalate the situation. 
especially if they don't also have a gun, which we know was true for Barry. The next issue I have with the story is what Cranston said about the moment he fired the shot. He testified that he aimed for Barry's chest, but he also testified that because Barry was so close to him, he just fired blindly, not paying attention to where he was shooting. He also said at one point that he wasn't actually sure he'd hit Barry, and he looked for a wound after the shot had been fired. And then, of course, there's the 26-second pause between Barry punching Tyler Smith and Cranston shooting Barry. Now, that doesn't sound like a lot of time, and to be fair, it's not necessarily. But I'm going to pause here for 13 seconds, half the amount of time between the punch to Smith and the shooting of Barry. During these 13 seconds, I want you to take a mental note of all the thoughts in your head during that time. How many things did you stop and think about during that time? Remember that Cranston had twice as long to stop and reflect on the situation and his next actions. The prosecutor questioned why Cranston's first reaction was to immediately reach for his gun rather than running away or calling for help. Cranston testified that he didn't think walking away from the situation was an option. Quote, it didn't really cross my mind, end quote. When asked why he didn't call 911, Cranston testified that he didn't feel like he could leave Butler and Smith alone with Barry. Quote, I wasn't sure what he was capable of, end quote. Prosecutors argued that Cranston had multiple chances to leave the scene, but instead he chose to stay and escalate the situation with his firearm. The defense called one other witness, an emergency medicine specialist. She testified that Cranston allegedly suffered a skull fracture on the night of the altercation after being punched by Barry. The prosecution called a rebuttal witness who reviewed Cranston's CT scans and testified that he found no evidence of a skull fracture. According to the prosecution's expert, there was no bone fragment shown on the CT as the defense expert had claimed. In other words, Cranston didn't suffer any serious injury on the night of the shooting. He had a black eye and cuts on his eyebrow and eyelid. Those were the extent of his injuries. After a two-week trial, the case was handed off to the jury. Jurors deliberated for six and a half hours before finding Cranston guilty of first and second degree manslaughter, first degree assault, and two counts of unlawful use of a deadly weapon. The jury found Cranston not guilty of the second degree murder charge. Lawanda, Barry's mom, said she was, quote, so happy to have some type of justice for her son, end quote. The verdict surprised her because she said she didn't have any trust in the Oregon justice system. Cranston's sentencing hearing was held on November 29, 2022. 
Barry's mom spoke and told the court, quote, What's clear to me is that if my son was white, he would be alive today. My son was my everything. He always had a way of cheering you up when you were down. He was loving, caring, and always the life of the party. There is no pain as intense as what is in my broken heart. End quote. One of Barry's cousins also spoke at the sentencing hearing. She said Barry's love for his mom was unconditional and he would do anything for her. She said Barry had a, quote, sweet demeanor and a willingness to help with anything, end quote. Then she spoke directly to Cranston, quote, You robbed him of his life, his future, and his family, end quote. First-degree manslaughter is a Measure 11 crime. This means there are mandatory minimum sentences that must be applied without discretion. Under Measure 11, first-degree manslaughter carries a maximum sentence of 10 years in prison. Second-degree manslaughter, which is also a Measure 11 crime, carries a maximum sentence of 75 months or a little over 6 years. The judge sentenced Cranston to 10 years in prison plus 3 years of parole. These sentences would run concurrently, and the mandatory minimum sentencing requires that Cranston serve all 10 years of his sentence with no chance of parole and no reduction or lesser sentence. Cranston's attorney said he plans to appeal the convictions. This episode was a heavy one for me to write and record. Sadly, this case is one of many when it comes to the killing of unarmed black men. Barry Washington Jr. was out drinking, having a good time. He should still be alive. But he's not, because of the actions of Ian Cranston. As always, we want to hear your thoughts on today's episode. Was Cranston justified in his use of force? Would a reasonable person in the same situation have been in fear for their life? Should the DA have charged Cranston with a bias-slash-hate crime? Should the jury have convicted Cranston of the second-degree murder charge? Leave your thoughts and comments on our social media posts for this episode or send us an email. Thank you for listening to today's episode. Please subscribe and leave a review if you like the show. You can email case suggestions or comments to truecrimecatlawyer at gmail.com. The links for our social media pages are included in the show notes. You can find our discussion group on Facebook by searching for True Crime Cat Lawyer in the group section. And if you want more content, head over to Patreon to join one of our available tiers. You can get monthly mini and bonus episodes as well as early access to our main episodes. Finally, if you're interested in learning more about my co-host, you can check out her Instagram at WinstonTheCatPDX. Thanks again for listening and stay tuned for our next episode.